the things we are fearful about or afraid of are we are afraid because we don't understand those things or they look strange to us or we don't know much about them. And by being curious about them, we can actually gain the knowledge that allows us to overcome our fear. You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. Knowing my interest, family and friends will often send me links or even old school clippings when curiosity shows up in the news. When internationally known astrophysicist and best-selling author Mario Livio's book, Why, What Makes Us Curious, came out this summer, my mailbox practically exploded. I missed a chance to hear him speak at the Air and Space Museum, but joined the throngs at Politics and Prose a few weeks later to listen to what he had to say. It was a delightful talk filled with research that's become familiar to me, but also with insights and connections that were new and frankly pretty cool. From my ringside seat in the audience, I explained, I have this radio show all about curiosity, and I asked, do you think people can choose to be curious? Oh, absolutely, he replied. We must. What an affirmation. It's taken a while to find a spare moment in his busy schedule, but I'm delighted that Dr. Livio is available to join me today from Baltimore. First, a little introduction. Mario Livio is a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and has published more than 400 scientific papers on topics ranging from dark energy and cosmology to black holes and extrasolar planets. He's also the author of six popular science books, including the national bestseller Brilliant Blunders, one of the Washington Post's best books of the year in 2013, and his new book, Why, What Makes Us Curious, which was released here in the U.S. in July of this year. So welcome, Dr. Livio. My pleasure to be here. You have been making the case for curiosity for quite some time. What, what made you curious about curiosity? Uh, it's actually very simple. Uh, the reason I became curious about curiosity is just because I'm a very curious person myself. And I've always been curious, and uh, you know, in addition to my obvious interest in science, I've always been interested in other things, in art, in music. Um, uh, believe it or not, I am—I have the sort of strange title of a science advisor to the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, and things like that. So, just at one point, uh, I became curious about curiosity itself. And I decided, you know, to spend, uh, you know, almost five years uh, studying what has been done on curiosity, talking, uh, interviewing scientists to do research on this, visiting labs and so on. And what, what, what were some of the most intriguing things that you learned in that process? Um, well, one thing is simple, but uh, still I found it intriguing. And that was that, you know, I see curiosity as being so important to us because, it drives all the basic research. It, uh, you know, drives education. It drives storytelling in all of its shapes and forms and so on. So I thought that there will be lots of researchers who study curiosity. And I was surprised that actually the number of people who specifically study curiosity is relatively small. 
now, you know, th- that surprised me, but at the same time, you know, I realized that, you know, curiosity is a part of what we call consciousness, and that's such a big topic that different researchers are, are studying different aspects of it. And uh, the number of people who study curiosity is relatively small. I'm I'm in some ways relieved to hear you say that because that's been my experience and I was afraid I was missing things. <laughs> no, I think you weren't missing. It's just not very many. I mean, there were other intriguing things, but uh, this was the first thing that caught me a bit by surprise. Yeah. So who's good to watch? I mean, who do you think is doing interesting work that we should be keeping an eye on? Uh, Well, one person that I describe her work in the book is uh, Jackie Gottlieb at Columbia University. Uh, She does uh, her, her work really focuses on curiosity. Uh, another person is Laura Schultz at MIT. Uh, so there are a few people who do, you know, specifically work on curiosity. Marike Yepma in the Netherlands. Uh, so, so there are people who work on curiosity. It's just that their numbers are not huge. Yeah, yeah. And then you looked um, at Leonardo and Richard Feynman in, as sort of two examples of profoundly curious people. Um, and it's really hard to argue with that as a characterization. What um, what struck you from that investigation about those two individuals? So yes, I mean both Leonardo and and uh, Richard Feynman, uh, you know, they sort of I think stand head and shoulders above <laughs> right. even the curious among us. Um, so the things that are really uh, are quite amazing, for example, in Leonardo's case, is that he was literally curious about everything. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, I, sometimes people you know, are interested in science, in the arts, maybe in science and the arts, but he was interested in every phenomenon that he saw around him, you know, and be it on the microscopic scale, you know, I mean, things inside the human body, anatomy and all that and so on, and on the macroscopic scale, you know, everything that he saw in his world, including astronomy, uh, you know, that could be done at the time. Uh, and, uh, of course, all the phenomena that he saw on Earth, you know, like water flows and, and, uh, and, and all of this on top of his interests in building machines, engineering, and, and all that stuff. So he's really quite amazing. Now, Feynman, I would say... Uh, maybe not quite as broad as Leonardo, but on the other hand, uh, with incredible achievements, of course, in physics. And in that, again, he stands out in that he was interested in every area of physics. Mm -hmm. And he contributed Mm -hmm. to almost every area of physics. But in addition to that, you know, he played the bongo. He learned how to draw. Um, He was an expert in Mayan hieroglyphs. He uh, he was a huge uh, expert on safe cracking, you know, and things like that. So, so again, uh, incredibly broad interests. Well, and you, you were in that category too. Talk about. I'm fascinated by your role as the science advisor to the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. That sounds like one of those wonderful kind of intersection connection kinds of roles and a, and a ripe place for a curious person. What's what's the role mean? Yeah, yes, but l- let's not make it on, of it too much. I mean, because at the end, it's a small role. I mean, most symphony orchestras don't even have a science advisor. I mean, oh, but maybe uh, the BSO should. is is kind of unique in that. Uh-huh. Uh, what that means is that 
on a few occasions where they played you know, pieces that had maybe some relation to science. For example, I don't know, Gustav Holtz, The Planets, or something like that. Uh, then I would come and uh, perhaps make a very brief, you know, five-minute presentation ahead of the piece uh, connecting to the science. Uh, they had a piece called Rainbow Body that I, I somehow connected to Hubble images and showed some of those. Uh, I did once... Uh, uh, a brief presentation about uh, um, symmetry and the role it plays in science and in music. Um, and also, um, um, you know, the musical director, Marin Alsop, she has this thing off the cuff, uh, where she, after the concert she would have a, a brief sort of conversation with the audience, if you like, and I participated in, in one of those with her. Uh, so that we, you know, discuss things. Uh, this was actually in relation to the planets. So why, I could see why that would be wonderful for you. What do you think motivated the uh, the symphony to seek you out to do that? What difference did that make to the music? Yeah, um, I think that they thought that this enriches the experience mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. because in, in the same way that, you know, Feynman once wrote that, you know, understanding something about the flower doesn't take away from its beauty. Um, so, uh, you know, by by knowing something, let's say, about symmetry and how it played into the works of Mozart or Bach, um uh, uh, I, I think adds to to the, the experience that people have. They see things a little bit differently, uh, you, you know. Or, or you know, you look at things like Beethoven's Fifth, and you see how he plays with symmetry in you know in throughout the piece. And I'm talking various types of symmetry. Not uh, people normally associate symmetry with the, the bilateral symmetry that you know our face nearly has. But I'm talking about there's symmetry under translation, that, you know, the same thing repeats itself at, at different intervals. There's symmetry under reflection. Uh, there is symmetry under rotation. So there are different types of symmetry. And understanding those, or at least having some appreciation of those, uh, I think, uh, you know, makes the experience uh, richer and more informed. Mm-hmm. So clearly there are advantages to being curious to to pursuing and exercising curiosity but but to the question of your book what is it that makes us curious yeah uh, the subtitle was deliberately chosen um to be ambiguous uh, you may have not <laughs> I like that this. about it <laughs> uh, yeah it's you see you, you can read it as what makes us curious namely what are the things that uh, they, and what makes us curious uh, namely, you know, what, like what are the mechanisms in our brain and so on that make us, uh, you know, experience curiosity. Um, so, indeed, I discuss both of them um, in 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 the book. So, um, in terms of you know the types of things that make us curious, then there are different types of curiosity, and they were um, outlined by a psychologist named Daniel Berline, British Canadian psychologist. And uh, four in particular that he identified were perceptual curiosity, which is the curiosity we feel when we see something that surprises us or that doesn't agree with what we know or think we know. Then there is epistemic curiosity, which is 
the curiosity that drives, uh, you know, scientific research, uh, the best works of art, when this is the wanting to know, the, our love of knowledge and of information. Um, then there is diversive curiosity, which is the type of thing that, um, you know, young people today do all the time when they're all the time on their cell phones, um, you know, looking for text messages and so on. This is basically toward of boredom. And finally, there is specific curiosity, which is when we're curious about knowing a very specific piece of information, like when we miss a word in a crosswords puzzle or, you know, we try to remember uh, what was the name of the movie we saw last month or things like that. Um, so, so these are the types of curiosity. Then in terms of the mechanisms of the brain, it turns out that those are also quite different, actually, for the different types of curiosity. Do you think we should, or that we might eventually use different words to describe what we now describe as curiosity? Uh, I'm not sure because, uh, you know, the, the word is now, you know, deeply ingrained in our language. Uh, but had we known, like what I know now uh, from the beginning, so it, it turns out that perceptual curiosity, this curiosity when we're surprised and so on, um, it, it actually activates parts of the brain that are associated with conflict. So it, it is associated with an unpleasant feeling uh, because things don't agree with what we think we know. And um, curiosity then acts to reduce the unpleasant feeling. On the other hand, epistemic curiosity, this love of knowledge, it turns out activates areas of the brain that are associated with the anticipation of reward. Uh, you know, a bit like uh, you, you know, when you finally sit in a play you always wanted to see, or when somebody offers you a piece of chocolate or things like that. So, so, and and it's it's a pleasant feeling, really. So, for example, uh, perceptual and epistemic curiosity are both associated with a different psychological state. One is unpleasant, the other is pleasant. And in terms of which areas of the brain are activated, they are different. So had we known all of this, we might have used <laughs> perhaps different words for uh -huh. the two types of curiosity. Uh -huh. But of course, we at the moment use curiosity for both. We have what we have, right? Well, I'm struck that there's this uh, bittersweet isn't quite the right expression, but this um, this positive negative connection. You've you've said that being curious is like being hungry, and satisfying our curiosity is like having good sex. And both of those have this this desire seeking satisfaction. That there's a process that's a that's that's satisfying and and fulfilling. There's a closure that's satisfying and fulfilling, but it's also the loss of something. It's an interesting, complex uh, human dynamic, isn't it? Yes, indeed. The the satisfaction of curiosity, I mean, is is really uh, closely associated with uh, with a dopamine path in the brain. So, which is also associated, you know, with reward mechanisms. So, indeed, the satisfaction of of curiosity very much uh, is uh, connected to the reward uh, mechanism. Well, one of the things that, and I think you you. Uh, you sort of coined this expression of curiosity is the best remedy for fear, which is another kind of interesting question about sort of what's going on in the brain there. Talk talk more about that, if you would. 
um, and yes. what what the implications are for that. Yeah. So 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 I coined this phrase: curiosity is the best remedy for fear, only to discover that. Uh, well, maybe I was the first to phrase it quite like that, but uh, the same sentiment has actually been expressed before me. Only I didn't know about this until after the fact. Um, but but I, I, I strongly believe in this in this sentiment. You see, v- very often the things we are fearful about or afraid of are we are afraid because we don't understand those things or they look strange to us or we don't know much about them. And by being curious about them, we can actually gain the knowledge that allows us to overcome our fear. Um, and 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 I think that we should all adopt this. I mean, there are many, many things in life where, um, and, and many examples in history uh, where, uh, you, you know, uh, fear came simply out of uh, misunderstandings or, you know, not knowing enough because things were too exotic, too strange. But by being curious about them, you actually could overcome that fear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you also write and have spoken for, for quite some time about sort of wanting that curiosity is contagious and we wanted, you'd like to see an epidemic. So how's that going? Do you do you see it happening? I'd like to be a vector. How can I be a contagion vector for you? Well, by having this program, I think you're already <laughs> contributing some. Hopefully, I hope. I hope. Uh, yes, uh, you know. I mean, if you could increase your audience, <laughs> I mean, you would do even more. Um, so, look. I mean, unfortunately, I'm not sure that we live at a at a time now where everybody recognizes this, that, Mm. you know, we should enhance curiosity. Unfortunately, uh, I see in society today uh, quite a few forces that, if anything, act to suppress curiosity. Um, And we have known such periods in the history of humankind. Of course, the Middle Ages are the best known such period where you know, entire walls have been built um, around certain types of knowledge. Uh, and, and we know what that did to societies. I mean, you know, yeah, basically, yeah. you know, curiosity was almost frozen solid, and uh, as a result, uh, uh, progress stalled. So uh, I think we should do everything we can uh, to, you know, enhance curiosity and well if possible make it into an epidemic i'm saying this i'm saying this of course uh you know with a bit of humor um but but really we should make people curious and we should make uh, children curious in particular i mean children are are naturally curious and we should do everything we can um to enhance this curiosity and also to drive it you know to go from the perceptual, which is, you know, that they are surprised by things and so on because everything is new, to to this epistemic curiosity where they really want to know and they want to gain knowledge. Uh, And so all of that um, can really, uh, you know, uh, do great things for for entire societies and indeed also as a remedy for fear. Yeah, yeah. So do you have any particular curiosity habits yourself? 
curiosity habits. Yeah, things uh, that well, you do my curiosity habits is that they happen all the time and almost every minute. I in uh, in the sense that uh, you know I see this, I read that, I do that, I I, I do that. Uh, now, um, like uh, you know, I speculate in the book that Leonardo may have suffered from ADHD. Um, uh, because he was not very good at finishing projects. Uh, he all the time just kept being uh, attracted to something else. And uh, I, uh, you know, I'm too old, so I was never act- actually diagnosed with ADHD, but I'm convinced that I have ADHD, um, which is a, sort of an extreme form of curiosity <laughs> where you, yeah, you find yeah. continuously other things to be curious about. Uh, now, by the way, of course, Children today are sometimes treated for ADHD, but the thing is the following. I mean, as long as I think a child manages to function and he doesn't, uh, you know, uh, his or her uh, attention disorder uh, doesn't uh, interfere with their ability to study, you know, and so on, I would say, you know, let them be curious. Uh, Only when, you know, it becomes debilitating and so on, then you should intervene, you know, with medical uh, solutions. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is, of course, you know, I share your hope that maybe I can grow my audience. But that's the point also of the title in terms of simply encouraging people to make the choice to be curious um, in ways large and small and maybe do it for their kids and everything else around them. So. Um, Indeed. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on this. So before I let you go, I, um, I have a little curiosity exercise for you. I have this big jar of wannabe analogies, and I pull slips of paper out, and then we'll each make um, an analogy to curiosity. So I, you're in Baltimore. I'm here in Arlington. So I pulled the slips of pa- paper out earlier today. I haven't looked at them yet, but here they are. So my word for curiosity, analogy for curiosity is Soil and yours is is what sorry soil, soil and and yours is snack bar. Would you like to go first? Or you want me to try my analogy of Did soil you say to carry? snack bar? Snack bar. Yep. Snack bar. Yep. You know, is is uh, you know a chocolate bar or something like that? Uh, could be the actual food. I mean, I it's up to you, right? It could be the yes, actual right. food itself, or um, a place where you might go to pick up food. I guess would be. A oh, I see. So it could be the place, or it could be the the sure. item. Either one, you get to yes. decide. It's your analogy. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. So uh, right. So uh, an analogy to curiosity. Well, um, you know, I just said <laughs> that uh, epistemic curiosity. Um, is uh, activates our anticipation of reward. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, it's the type of feeling that uh, you would have when somebody offers you a chocolate bar. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, it, it's a good feeling. I mean, that, that is associated with a pleasurable feeling, and, and, and that's the curiosity we really want to enhance in everybody. And by the way, it's it's very interesting that even though perceptual curiosity, this ability to be surprised or the willingness to take risks for novelty, uh, does seem to decline with age, epistemic curiosity, the love of knowledge, actually seems to be staying fairly constant with age. Huh. So um, I think that, um, you know, our um, feeling that 
getting a chocolate bar is a good thing that stays probably constant throughout our life. <laughs> well, that's certainly my experience. <laughs> so let me see. That was wonderful. Thank you. I like that. Uh, let me see. How is curiosity like soil? I'll say that um, curiosity is like soil because it's the nutrient-rich base from which all life comes. That's how curiosity is yeah, like. Yeah, very nice. Uh, I, I like to say that curiosity and a number two pencil can take you very far. Ah, uh, I love that. I am going to promote that. Okay. <laughs> and audience, um, your word is socks. How is curiosity like socks? Socks? Uh, socks, yep. Putting your socks on in the morning. Uh, let okay, us know. Okay, but that's for the audience. That's for the audience, unless you yeah, want to take a shot. I'm glad I didn't get that. <laughs> well, we'll see what people do with it. Um, well, Dr. Livio, thank you so much for joining me today. And um, we'll uh, together continue to choose to be curious, huh? Thank you for having me. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of the other fabulous programs here on Radio Arlington, check us out online and on demand at WERA.FM. You can hear all my shows in their entirety on Facebook, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, and iTunes, all at Choose to be Curious. And follow me on Twitter at Choose number two, letter B, Curious. Don't forget to send us your socks analogy, hashtag analogy. Special thanks to my guest, Dr. Mario Livio, to WERA colleague Beverly Allen for helping make the connection to Dr. Livio. Beverly hosts Practical Security on here on Radio Arlington and offers information and tips to help listeners protect themselves, their homes, communities, and workplaces from security threats, including digital threats in cyberspace. No geek speak allowed. Non-technical listeners will feel right at home Thursday mornings at 11. I hope you'll join me next time, and until then, choose to be curious. Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com.